You're listening to our weekly podcast, Getting in the Word with Stuart Guthrie. Stuart is the teaching pastor of Family Bible Fellowship of Ridgeville in Early Branch, South Carolina. We hope to grow together with you, seeking real knowledge from the truth, the Word of God. Here's Stuart. Well, after some time away and the end of a doctrine of ministry and the completion of that, I'm able to bring a fresh word this morning. Um, And so we are jumping back into the book of John. Thank you for your prayers as we've been working through that. And, uh, And I'm excited because God's timing is always on time. I was reminded while I was away in California of Isaiah 41 that when we understand God's sovereign timing, we can work not out of fear, but in faith. His timing is always perfect. And in a world of chaos and confusion, I believe God's sovereign time will allow us to walk by faith and not by sight. So I've entitled the message today, appropriately titled, The Advocate. Really, this portion of John chapter 16 with Jesus making yet another promise of the Holy Spirit that He would come. And boy, do we need a greater understanding of the forgotten God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, for the benefit of the body of Christ and for the benefit of even the lost world needing to know Christ as their Savior and for the believer walking out their lives in repentance. This isn't the first promise that has been made by Jesus in which He tells us that we will receive the Advocate. Jesus in John chapter 7 early on in this book promised the Holy Spirit that He would come and that He would grant us eternal life. And listen, the reality is this. The Spirit of God, the Advocate, offers only through His work and His power to us eternal life. There is no greater evidence in the power of God than a sinner turned to a saint, a a, a dead man to life, light uh, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. There is no greater evidence in the power of God than one who has been completely regenerated and saved eternally. And if you recall, if we look at John chapter 14 in the first six verses, he makes a promise that he is going to prepare a place. And if he goes and prepares a place, he says, I will come again and receive you to myself. That way I'm there, you may be also. And the disciples have no clue what he's talking about. Jesus says, and you know the way I'm going. And doubting Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then when we come to verse 16 of chapter 14, we find another promise that He would send an advocate. And He, the Holy Spirit, would come and at this time indwell them. And the eternality of the Holy Spirit has always been present in, in, in His functioning, but after His death, burial, and resurrection, the indwelling of the Spirit functions differently. And so we know that after the gospel is revealed, the indwelling of the Spirit is a new activity that's taking place. For which Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you also, after listening to the word of truth, how are we saved through the gospel of your salvation by the word of God? It is, remember, he says, Sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth having also believed you were sealed with Him, with the Holy Spirit of promise. What promise? Well, the promise we find here in John chapter 14 today. And no, Jesus, when He says something, He means it. When Jesus opens His mouth and speaks, it's it's truth. And when He makes a promise to you, you, you don't have to doubt it, you can be certain of it. Because it will come to pass. It might pass like a kidney stone, but it shall pass. (laughs) And so when we come to verse 26, John 
promises the advocate whom the Father will send in His name. Of Chapter 14, He says He will teach us all things and bring us Bring to our remembrance all that He has said. So this is not a new promise in which we approach today in John chapter 16. This is a promise that He has stated over and over and over. A promise that is a benefit for you. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, it is still a, a common grace on humanity by which God who created the heavens and the earth promises the advocate that He will come. And in John chapter 14, there we come to the close of that chapter and says, let us get up and go from here. They leave the upper room there, what we consider the upper room discourse. And as we approach into John chapter 15, he, he begins to share on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane some great truths. And he begins to describe to his disciples the vine and the branch. And he teaches a valuable lesson of understanding that unless you are connected to the life-giving vine, you will be dead and you will be dried up and you will produce no fruit at all. And then he also continues as he establishes the truth that if you are in Christ, and Christ in you, union with Christ, being connected to the life-giving vine, that when he says you are to love one another, you are able to do so. You are able to do so. We live in a world where it's really love is cheap. And if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've been studying what love is. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because when he says here in John chapter 15 that he commands us to love one another, this is not some phantasaical love. No, this is a love that is defined by the Word of God. It's not just simply words, it's an action. And so when we come to John chapter 13, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We were reminded that everything minus love equals nothing. You could be the greatest of the greatest and yet not have love and you are of no value whatsoever to the eternal things of this world. And so he says in verse 4, love is patient. Are you patient with people? Love is kind. Are you kind? Love is not jealous. Now, it, this is important to understand as he commands us to love one another, that we have to ask ourselves the question, does this reflect our life? Not what I think about myself but what others see in me. When people think of Stuart Guthrie, when, when people think of you, do they think that this man or this woman is patient? Are they kind? Are they, are they jealous? Or are they not jealous? Love does not brag. Are you boastful? Speaking of yourself or, your, or, or how great you are? No, love is not puffed up. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take account of wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but, but rejoices in truth. Not, not some fabricated truth. No, the Word of God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Don't speak to someone that you love. That's not what God's commanding. He's calling us to action. I tell my children, love is not a word, it's an action. When a young man or a young woman tells you they love you, don't listen to their words. Look at what they do. You will know then by the way they treat you. So He commands us in John 15 to love. 
Which is only possible, by the way, for those who are in Christ. Because there is no way that you can, you can act out those lifestyles unless you have the advocate on your side who sanctifies you, and who grows you and matures you in the faith. And then he continues the reminder, the third aspect of John chapter 15, when he says, if the world hates you, have no fear, they hated me first. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Christ, they will persecute you. And when you live a godly life, and when you love the way the Word of God commands us to love, and when you're connected to the true vine, He wants you to understand the world will hate you. Because true love will call out sin in your life. I have men in my life who will call out when I'm not living like I should live. And the fool pushes away the rebuke. But the wise man understands it, chews on it, and lets it permeate his heart so that he might grow more into the image of Christ. So don't worry if they hate you. Listen, first you need to understand they hated me. So he warns as we come into chapter 16, he tells us all of these things. He reminds us so that we might not stumble. Think about that for a second. He's warned us that, that, that we must be connected to the vine. We must love and, and we must understand that the world will hate you. And he tells us these things to keep you from stumbling. You see, when you are connected to Christ, the life-giving source. You can obey the command to love one another. And when you don't, you will repent and ask for their forgiveness after you've asked God for forgiveness. And when you are hated by the world and when you understand what that looks like, it will prevent you from stumbling and falling into the enemy's trap. The devil says, respond. God says, turn the other cheek. The Scripture says, do not answer a fool in his folly. We need to simply press ahead and rely on the promises of God. He, he tells us these things as He sets the stage for our verse this morning. He tells us so that we might not stumble. And so as we approach our text today out of its context in which we will face a world that hates us and lies about us and creates all kind of imaginary or fictitious and foolish chatter about you, about your family, about your church, it's in our verse that we are reminded today in the promises of an advocate, a helper. So you may feel this morning the weight of the world. You, you, maybe you're facing uncertain days by which you, you can't even understand what's happening. Maybe you have become against by a demonic influence. And you're not even sure how to handle it. Maybe you're walking in this world and you realize that you are a sinner in your need of repentance and to turn to God seems absolutely impossible and out of character for you. Maybe you feel like the world hates you. Maybe your children... Maybe your spouse. Well, I've got great news for you today, my friend. You and I, in Christ, have an advocate. We have an advocate. Turn with me, if you will, to John 16. I want us to look at verse 5 to 15. John 16, 5 to 15. But now I am going to Him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you, and He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will, and you will no longer see Me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But He, 
But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. And He will not speak from Himself, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me. For He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore, I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. Three things that I want us to observe from the text first. I want you to see the grief, the grace, and the guarantee. Let's begin by looking at the grief. He begins here in John chapter 16. He says, but now I am going to Him who sent me. Jesus provides a little context for what is to come. But Jesus, remember, because He is God in flesh, He knows all things. He, he is, he is all-knowing. He knows exactly what is awaiting Him at the cross of Calvary. But this wasn't His first announcement of this truth. He says in Matthew 16, 21, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. I mean, Jesus knew that He was going to be killed on the cross. You, you, you think that's hard? That He would be pierced through for the iniquity of the world? That, that your sin and my sin would be poured out on Him and that He would stand as your substitute? Imagine carrying that grief. Could you imagine carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders? That you must die as a sacrifice for mankind? And that this is approachly, quick, quickly coming? I mean, He's only a, a day or so away from the cross, my friends. He has reminded them for this for some time. He says in Matthew 22 and 23, the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men and they will kill Him and He will be raised up on the third day and they were deeply grieved. He says in Mark 8, 31, and He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected again by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. We are reminded. He reminds us of them over and over again. He says it in Mark 9.30. He says it in Luke 9.22. He says it in verse 43 and 45. He says it in John 12. He says it in John 14. And now He's talking about it in John chapter 16. He is going to be crucified, buried and raised from the dead to cover our sins. It's going to happen. Must happen. Because again, in order to fulfill His promise of the Advocate. We must have an encounter with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This again is the announcement that Jesus is about to take His final approach to the cross. Imagine the grief that Christ faced in His humanity. He's fully God, yet He's fully man. Imagine somebody told you, tomorrow they will nail you to that cross. And you will become a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now the disciples don't seem to understand the extent of what is going to happen. They simply know that He is going away. And where He is going, they cannot come. And because of this continual news of His departure, for them it is a continual pressure of sorrow and grief and pain in their lives. I mean, they've waited they waited 400 years of silence for the Messiah to come on the scene. And He's here and He's with them. And now He's telling them that He's going away. Could you imagine that the pain and the sorrow? No, no, no. We, 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 you can't go anywhere. We, we need you here. But remember, Christ was sent. And He was sent with a purpose. It was God's purpose to send His Son to redeem mankind. And the text says, But now I am going to Him who sent me, and none of you are asking where you are going, because I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. Christ was sent for this very purpose. And whatever grief you bring today, when you put it in the scope of that, it can turn your grief to gladness. 
It can turn your sorrow to singing. It can return your rejection to rejoicing. That the God of heaven it, it, it loved you so much that before the foundations of the world, He prepared His Son to come and to stand in your place and to take your sin and nail it to the cross. His justice was fulfilled. Isaiah 53.10 says that it pleased God to sacrifice His own Son. Why? Because justice was paid. Somebody had to die. And it was not you. And it was not me. He was sent for this purpose. So if anybody at this point should have grief <laughs> in the story of which we're reading, should be Christ, not the disciples. But if they're really focusing on Christ, this is not an issue. But what's happened is they're focusing on themselves. They're self-focused. Now we can mock them and we can make fun of them that, that, that they would do such a thing. But can't we understand that many times we're just like that and we do the same thing? We get so wrapped up in our own personal issues. And what's being said and what's being done and what's happening in our world that we can find ourselves downright depressed and disappointed. But when you understand what Christ has done, <laughs> when you understand the grief that He endured, that you might be set free from the penalty of sin, that, my friends, should be enough to grant your heart a, a rejoicing, renewed attitude. And so John says, but now, sorrow has filled your heart. So easy to get wrapped up in our own issues when we lose sight of what God is really doing. We may feel that life is tough, but when you look to Christ, many of our curses turn to blessings. But we can't see it many times because we're so self-focused. Jesus was selfless, wasn't He? He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. But they allowed sorrow to fill their heart. And in verse 20 and verse 21 and verse 22, all of these same, the Greek words translated, gives us an idea of what He means by grief, which is translated lamented and crying. They are in pain. They're devastated. And since sometimes we just need the reminder that when grief comes, when difficulties arise, when strange circumstances find themselves to your home, this is where God's going to show up and do what God does in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your suffering. It comes from following Christ. Now, I'm not talking about suffering because you deserve it. There are many who suffer because they deserve what they get. Not because they're following Christ, but rather the enemy, the devil, the, the liar. And it would be wise to watch out for those who are, are always crying the victim. Why? Because in Christ we're not victims, we're victors. <laughs> Boo-hoo me! Keep one eye open. Keep one eye open. They can't see anything outside of their own circumstances. Here in this chapter, we see the disciples are so self-focused. They don't even ask Him where He's going this time. Now, John chapter 14, in the first six verses, we see that unfold. And, 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 and so a lot of people think there's a contradiction here, but there's no contradiction here. Why? Because at the end of chapter 14, He says, we got up and we left from there. And they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so here we find another time in which He warns them, and here they don't even ask where He's going. So there's not a contradiction. He's reminding them again over and over and over. And as His time approaches the cross, and as it reaches its pinnacle, it becomes more pertinent that they understand what's going to happen so that when it does, they will fully grasp what has been said. And thus, when God says in chapter 16, I've written these things, verse 1, so that you may be kept from stumbling, that when the hate comes, you're okay. 
and the people who don't love you come your way, it's okay. When people who act like they're something they're not, they dress like Reeves, but really they're just fake, cut, and they come in your world and they try to attack you, it's okay. You have an advocate. When they come in your life and they try to mess you up or your children up, it's okay. We have an advocate. We are not victims. We are victors in Christ. And Jesus reminds us the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. The gates of hell will not prevail over the church. So we need to stay focused on Christ, my friends. And our, turn, and our grief will turn to gladness. And He will turn the most tragic circumstance into an opportunity to bring Him glory. To bring Him glory. So notice the grief comes from self-focus. The grief comes from a focus on temporal anticipations. What we don't see that I believe is there is the context of who they expected and what they expected of Messiah. They expected a Messiah on a white horse to come and to deliver them from their current cultural circumstance, to remove them from Roman oppression. But that ain't God's purpose. Why? Because this ain't our world. This ain't our home. I don't care how bad it gets out there. This ain't my residence. I'm a future residence of the kingdom of God. And I'm living for eternity now because He who has the Son has the life, not will and may, no, has the life now in the present tense. We are simply recruiting future residents for the kingdom of God. Or at least we should be. But here, they're all caught up in their current circumstances. Focused on temporal anticipation, but what they received is a, a king on a donkey who came to serve, who came to wash the feet of the disciples. who came to suffer and die, even a death on a cross. A death reserved for criminals. And because this was their focus, they found themselves with hearts full of sorrow and lamenting tears and pain. I, I hope that this morning, whatever bothers your soul, whatever circumstance you find yourself, my circumstances ain't your circumstances, but I can promise you this, Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. When you focus on Christ, you, when you find yourself in unfamiliar territory, you can find peace. Psalm 9, 9 says, The Lord is my refuge and strength. He, he, is, he is the refuge, refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. In Psalm 18, 2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold. If He be for me, who can be against me? See, there's a boldness in knowing Christ. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Nehemiah 8, 10 says, don't grieve. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Whatever grief you bring, fix your eyes upon Christ. Fix your eyes upon the Savior of the world. We see the grief. Secondly, I want you to see the grace the grief was ruling in their lives of these disciples and their Savior is about to leave and they didn't quite understand what was happening. And so Christ is going to shed some hope in their lives. He says in verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. He's God in flesh. And he says, it's better that I go. And so like any good friend, he begins to comfort his disciples by reminding them of the benefit of his departure. He says in John chapter 14, verse 
12. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also in greater works than these he will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. That is not some ideal where you can do miracles and signs and wonders. No, my friend, when the advocate comes, he will save souls everywhere across the globe because he now indwells the believer. It's better he goes because there will be a greater work, a greater power that will be done. They certainly didn't understand this in the context. But my friends, this is a beautiful passage of Scripture that granted them an unescapable hope and an unescapable joy. And yes, they have missed it. And maybe, yes, you have, you may have missed it. But listen to me very clearly this morning. It is to your advantage as it was there that he went away. Because it's a benefit for us today. To the believer and to the unbeliever. Both the saved and the lost. Those who accept and those who reject. The advocate is a common grace upon this world by which God establishes. The Holy Spirit, listen, not only ministers to those that have put their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit ministers to a lasting and dying world, lost and dying world. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, in such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Listen, a matter of fact, I submit to you this morning that unless He goes away and He sends the Advocate, the lost and dying world would be absolutely distraught and destitute. They would be without hope. And that is because every single one of us have one thing in common, and that is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are dead. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We, none of us, can escape that category. Unless it is the God, the Holy Spirit, that draws us to Himself, we would never come to the Father. Friend, we would never choose Christ. We would never choose repentance in our lives as believers. And therefore, we can never boast about our salvation or even our personal holiness because it isn't you or I who does the work. It's the Advocate, the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5. We're not saved by the righteous deeds we've done, but because by His grace He has saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present in salvation. If someone's always telling you how good they are, tune them out. Pride comes before the fall. We are reminded in Romans 6, 6-7, which shows us the idea that the ruling power of sin no longer is the dominant power in our lives that once was in darkness. It was Steve Lawson that said and reminded me this week that sin is still present, but is no longer president in our lives. How? Because He went to the Father. The work of salvation and the work of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is a work of the Advocate. It's the wooing of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God that is a benefit and a grace to him who believes and him who rejects. The Holy Spirit is all about restoration. He is all about redemption. He is all about revitalization. The Holy Spirit is about grace for both the lost and saved. The text says, but if I go, I will send him to you. It's not a might. It's not a, a could. It's emphatic. It's definite. It's absolute. He will come. He will send Him to you. He says, I will send the Advocate. Notice the capital H. And that is because Advocate is referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an interesting Greek word here. Parakalatos. Derived from parakalato. Parakalato. And uh, the transliteration is paraclete. Now, it simply means this. One who is called to someone's aid. 
translated into English as advocate, helper, counselor. The transliteration derives the idea of one who advocates on behalf of another. The term may be technically used as called lawyer. Let that settle in for a minute. If I, if, if I go, I will send to you the Holy Spirit. He will be your lawyer. Let me remind you of who you are in Christ today. You have one who comes to your aid. He is your lawyer and he is a good one. And He will defend you. He will fight for you. He will stand in the crease on your behalf. When we have someone who intercedes on our behalf, we have the Spirit of God. We have the Advocate. John 14, 6, and He says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Advocate. He's currently the advocate, but when he leaves, he will, he will send another helper, another advocate who will indwell every single one of us who had placed their faith in Christ. That he may be with you forever. See, some temporal work, my friends. Notice the eternality of him. The, the, the paraclete who stands to defend you will always be there to defend you as a child of God. Listen, greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. So when, when, when we see this, when we understand that the light of the context of chapter 15 is beautiful, I, I tell you these things so that you won't stumble. Don't stumble because I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to stand in your place and I will defend you. You don't have to say a word. A good lawyer says, just sit there and be quiet. I got this. I've done the work. And let me remind you, this lawyer knows everything. He knows the truth. He knows the lies. He knows what is being done at home. He knows what's being done in your personal life. He, he, he knows you through and through. Because he is the true advocate, God, the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 8, we are reminded of how he says, and he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I want you to notice with me, if you will, all of the personal pronouns of the advocate. The text says, he, he will come. You can insert that. He will convict the world concerning sin. He will convict the world of, of righteousness and He will convict the world of judgment. Not Stuart. Not you. He, God, the Holy Spirit will convict. So notice what it doesn't say. That we convict the world of sin. One of the temptations of the believer is to think that we can do something that will convict the world of sin. The worst thing I can do as a pastor is preach a message against an individual. That's not my job. My job is to preach the text of God's Word and allow the Spirit of God through the Word of God to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's His job. It's His job to build the church. It's not my job to fill the seats. Praise God. There'd be nobody here. But by His grace, it's full. It's his job. And when he convicts the sin, the world of sin, righteousness and judgment, he does it out of the character of God. It is a just judgment. It is a just judgment because he knows all the details. It's not my battle to fight, and it is not your battle to fight. When your kids get out of line, yes. It is your job to share the Word of God with them, to discipline them. But know this, my friend, even the greatest parent, the most godly parent that gives the Word, it must come from the conviction of the Holy Spirit because there have been many godly parents where their kids have gone astray. Why? It's the job of the Holy Spirit. doesn't negate our responsibility. It give us the right to advocate our responsibility. It's the paraclete's job to stand on your behalf, on our behalf, and He will fight battles, He will defend you, and He will do it in a way that is right and just. 
Because leave it up to me, I will do it in a way that is unjust, I promise you. So no, we shouldn't lash back out when a fool spreads his garbage or her garbage behind your back. When you are slandered. When you are gossip against. The best thing you can do is tune it out. Let the advocate stand on your behalf. Trust in His judgment. I mean, He's already promised this to us. He will stand in your defense. Don't entertain it. Trust the advocate who will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So it's our job to simply apply the text of the Word of God and allow the Spirit of God through the working of the God to change the hearts of mankind. It doesn't matter how great a preacher is. It doesn't matter how good one can address an issue. It is the work and the Spirit of God, and we must rely and trust in His working. This is why... Sometimes it's just better to pray for people. Because when you pray for people, it's hard to get angry with people, isn't it? Because no matter what they do or what they say, your attack against them in return for their sin is less than what the Spirit of God can do through the Word of God. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your children who abandoned you. Pray for your spouse who's left you, single mom, single dad. Pray for the one who attacks. Pray for the current people in our world that are attacking our nation. Pray for them. Why? Because it is the, it is the Holy Spirit that will do the work in this world. Do we understand that? Like can, 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 we, can we fabricate that into our Christian worldview? That it is the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Listen, you can scream at the top of your lungs. You can get as mad as you want. You can do everything that you want to do to try to fix the problem. But my friend, it's a heart issue. It's a sin issue. And only God can fix the problem. So give it to Him. Give it to Him this morning. Trust and rely on Him. It's not how we work. It's not our ability to manipulate the Word of God so that we can find pride and try to fix the issues. 1 Timothy 6.20 says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, turning aside from godless and empty chatter and the opposing arguments, which is what, what is what? Of what is falsely called knowledge. Oh, I, I got some knowledge for you. It's false. There is a greater battle at hand, my friends, than taking time and energy to defend oneself against the wrongful accusations that will come your way. Because He's already promised, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And the way that the devil has always, from the beginning, is those that, that poison, dripping, double-tongued serpent will begin to plant seeds of doubt. Welcome to the devil's playground. Leave it up to God. He knows everything. And one day He will judge. It's more worth the battle for you to spend your time and energy battling for lost souls than it is trying to keep and upgrade your character. You know why? Because if we're going to be honest, we all deserve hell and the wrath of God. What worse thing can you say to me? What worse thing can I say to you when you deserve the pure flaming wrath and judgment of God. I love R.C. Sproul when he said, why do bad things happen to good people? He says, your problem is, is I'm yet to find a good person. We're all sinful, stained, and separated from God. And unless we are born again and become a saint, then we can't even live a life that honors Christ. Keep your eyes on the prize, my friend. Press forward to the goal that lies ahead because the gospel will prevail. 
The Word of God will not return void, my friend. It will either save them or judge them. (laughs) You just make sure you're faithful in sharing it. Verse 9 says that He will judge concerning sin because they do not believe in Him. He, He came to what was His own and those who were His own did not receive Him. Let me tell you what the Spirit of God will judge you. He will judge you by your disbelief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world will know you are fake by the life you live because if you believed in Christ, your walk would show it. Because He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Because the Spirit whom lives in you would transform your life. The only way to know if the Holy Spirit lives in you is to look in the mirror and reflect on the fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever had to do that personally? I I remember early on in my walk with Christ when the Lord revealed to me my sin and my need for a Savior and I placed my faith in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there was still a lot of junk in my life. And I remember looking in the mirror going, boy, you got to stop that. That ain't honoring to the Lord. We need that in our lives every day. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Let this settle in for a second. This is the fruit of the Spirit who lives in you as a believer. Love. We already determined what love was in John 13. I mean... 1 Corinthians 13. Love is joy. Love is peace. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. I don't have time to go into every one of these in detail, but just, just, just let that flow through your thought process of who you are and who you know. Faithfulness. Gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Now to those who belong to Christ, Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Listen, Christi- Christians, salvation is a lifestyle that results itself in the fruit of the Spirit. So so are we growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, allowing the fruit of the Spirit to be developed and to pour out of us so that when we don't respond in love or in joy or in peace or in patience or in kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that we can fall on our knees before our Savior and say, God, forgive me for this wasn't honoring to you. If we can't do that and we have no desire to do that, there is nothing in you. Because greater is He who is in you. Jesus crucified the flesh, my friends. And it is the Holy Spirit alone that will open your eyes to see it. The Holy Spirit is the only one who will give you hearing ears to hear it. And so make no mistake. He will judge your sin and unbelief. John 3.18 He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. It isn't your efforts, it isn't your deed that saves you. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that salvation will never be alone. It will always be accompanied by the fruit of the Spirit. Listen, sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. Let's just be real, have a a self-evaluation this morning. When's the last time you opened this book since last week? How do we expect to live a life that honors God if we ain't in the Word of God? I hear a lot about discernment today. Think about this, this is important. If you don't know the Word of God, you ain't got discernment. (laughs) 
Oh, I discern this. Is, no, 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 no. Does it line up with the Word of God? Because if it does not line up with the Word of God, I don't care what you got, it ain't discernment. So if you ain't a student of the Word of God, don't go around telling people you got discernment. You got something, but it ain't discernment because the Word of God is what impacts souls and minds and transformation in the life of the believer. You got deceptions, what you got. Not only will he be judging sin concerning sin, but concerning sin, verse 10, and concerning righteousness. Listen, it only takes a short time to, to evangelize the world and realize really quickly to, that you come to the conclusion the world thinks they're okay. Well, I ain't never killed nobody. The Bible says if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. A matter of fact, they think they're righteous. They think it's okay to accept the LGBTQ movement. They think it's okay to put people in ministry that, that aren't qualified to be in ministry. They think it's okay to be culturally relevant. They think it's okay to be woke. They think it's righteous. My friend, it ain't righteous. It's unrighteous. He will judge concerning righteousness. You see, the world masquerades as righteous and suppresses any evidence that would con contradict its activity. A change in such lifestyle or behaviors requires, my friend, the Spirit of God to expose the guilt. He, the advocate, who comes alongside of you through the Word of God, through your sharing the Word of God, through you encouraging people, through you rebuking your brothers in in love and grace and mercy, that's what convicts the soul. It's the, the advocate through the process. He is here to convict the world of what real righteousness is, what true righteousness is, the righteousness of Christ, and the bogus righteousness of sinful mankind. He will judge. Remember, He is the paraclete. He will one through the preaching of God's Word, reading of God's Word, quoting of God's Word, memorizing of God's Word, and the, and the outflow of that change a person's heart. Give them eyes to see. Give them ears to hear so that they will turn away from unrighteousness and turn to God's righteousness because I don't get to define what is right and wrong. I don't get to define what is good and evil. It's the Word of God. It's sufficient or it ain't. And if it ain't, we just might as well go on out and go fishing this morning. He will judge concerning righteousness. And how? John 16.10, He says, Because I go to the Father, and you no longer see Me. Listen, in order to get to heaven, my friend, you must be as righteous as Christ. How is that possible, Pastor? You just told me that all the sin have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says we sin. So how do we deal with that? And it was him who knew no sin that became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you ain't got the Holy Spirit in you, you ain't got no righteousness in you. But when you are sealed in with the Spirit, when you've placed your faith in the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, know this, he will come to take up residence in your soul and he will give you new eyes and new ears to see so that you might be sanctified. Christ was perfectly righteous. And Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 reminds us that God's eyes are too pure to approve evil. That He cannot even look on wickedness for favor. My friend, you must have the true righteousness. And that righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. You must be covered in the blood of the Lamb. The Bible is very clear. The only way that you can have the righteousness of Christ is if you've been transformed by the gospel message. Salvation isn't one time you prayed a prayer. Show me the book to chapter to verse. I'm up for debate on it. Not one time we prayed a prayer. The greatest testimony of salvation, my friend, is that you continue walking with Him. 
time is the greatest testimony of true, genuine salvation. Because anyone can say, look at me, I trusted Jesus. But what did they say on that day? He said, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. You ever cast out a demon in his name? I ain't. They did. But they missed the gospel. They missed the gospel. It should be our greatest desire that not somebody get what they deserve. We all deserve hell, but rather they get the grace of God. It should be our prayer that they get what they don't deserve. That God, by His great mercy that He established to you and to me, that He would shine His glorious grace upon their lives and that they would repent and believe the gospel and be changed. That's what we should desire for our enemy. That is perfect righteousness would convert that enemy of their sin to righteousness. That He would convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. The problem is Christ is their standard. And He is perfect. And we are not. So He judges sin. He judges righteousness. In verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. You see, Satan may still be the God of this world. Nevertheless, he is worshipped by the ones who follow Him. And both of them are doomed. I was speaking with someone and they were talking about how bad Joel Osteen was. And I said, here, listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. Joel Osteen don't bother me. He's a false teacher, but he ain't the one that scares me. The one that scares me is the one who's got 99.9% .9 right. And the 1% that will poison you and lead you to hell. We need to have eyes that view life through the lens of Scripture so that we can have true biblical discernment. And when it doesn't seem right, it ain't most of the time. And we are all guilty many times by suppressing what we know to be true for the benefit and the blessing of someone coming to Christ. But at some point, we have to discern whether enough's enough. And we have to call it what it is, sin. And when you, can, when you call out sin to somebody, they don't like it. I don't like it. It stings. But if I'm going to be a man of God, I need to heed it. And if I've sinned against somebody, I need to ask for their forgiveness. But more so, God's forgiveness first. It's not our job to try to fight and defend even as wrong as it is because their day of judgment will come, my friends. When I was at Dallas Theological Seminary, there was an old gentleman who for over many, many years, I don't know how many years, encouraged the student body to memorize Romans chapter 12. And whoever memorized Romans chapter 12, he would invite them to their house and feed them hamburgers. I got me a hamburger. But it was the greatest chapter in all of the Bible for me to memorize. When your enemy is hungry, feed them. When your enemy is thirsty, give them a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon their head. Don't pay back evil for evil. But as possible as it is with you, be at peace with all people. Leave room Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Not I might, not it, it may. No, I will repay. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is His vengeance, my friend. And when you do that, you can press on. Keeping your eyes focused on the prize. Forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to the goal that lies ahead. Listen, the reality is as we see the grief, we see the grace. And thirdly, I want you to see the guarantee. The text continues with six he will statements. He says, I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. I probably could preach on just this section, but I have five minutes. I have much more to say to you, but I don't have the time right now. <laughs> they don't have the Spirit of God yet. They can't handle all of this truth. They can't understand it yet. 
But when the Advocate comes, when the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence, all will come to reality. But He, when, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Listen, the guarantee of the Spirit is that He will first guide you into truth. If your truth don't match up to the Word of God, you ain't got truth. You got hogwash. You got lying lips. And the paraclete, the Spirit of God, will guide you and give you biblical truth. Not your truth and my truth. No, truth is absolute. It has always been true and will always be true. And you better bet there is a such thing as absolute truth. It either is or it ain't. Not this middle convoluted psychobabble. He will guide you into all truth. But understand it must never contradict the Word of God or you don't got truth, you got something else. Discernment's running around again. And if you ain't living off the truth of God's Word and you, got, you say you got discernment, no, you got a hunch. Might sound good, but it got no substance. It's got no foundation. It's got no, no, nothing to build off of. That's why we have to be very careful in a fictitious world when anything can be and everything may be possible. Because when you do that, you break away the necessity of absolute truth. No, we need to have the truth of God's Word. For He will not speak from Himself, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. Listen, if Jesus is not willing to say what He wants, then I ought to keep my, my mouth shut and not say what I want. But rather just say what He has already said. Because He's given us, the Scripture says, everything pertaining to life and to godliness. You want to fight the battle? Fight it with the Word of God. If you want to fight your enemy, fight it with the Word of God. When that comes in, this goes out. When this slaps you across the face, you slap them across the face with this. It's the battle tool. It's the sword. It's a double-edged sword, and it stabs deep into the soul of mankind. But He only speaks what He hears from the Father. We see a beautiful picture of the triunity of God. In verse 14, He will glorify me. The paraclete will, will exalt Christ for who He is. And He will take of mine and disclose it to you. What He's already said, He will bring to reality and bring to their remembrance in all things that the Father has are mine. And therefore, I said that He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The ultimate purpose of the Holy Spirit, listen, is to glorify Christ. And the greatest thing you can do is to glorify God. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To convict, to impress upon the hearts of mankind, people, the truth of Jesus Christ. Because the Spirit of God doesn't point to Himself. There He points us to who Christ is and what Christ is about. We have an amazing picture of Jesus receiving the truth from the Father, passing them on to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and revealing them to you and to me. And it's this triune circle that benefits the believer and even the unbeliever. Teachers of the Word of God, He gives us this so that we can be proclaimers in the church. Both the work of the Spirit and both the work of the Son of God. And put into a proper perspective, both stem from the Father. We ought not speak anything but that which comes from the Father. By way of application, I hope to encourage you that in your grief and in your struggles, you will be reminded of your necessity to focus on Jesus. And that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be an encouragement to you that you have an advocate. You have a lawyer who is coming alongside and will intercede on your behalf with groanings we can't even understand. He is our high priest. 
And he will reveal the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's not our job. Our job is to share the hope of Christ, the Word of God, and be a student of the Word of God so that the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, can work in the hearts of people. We have an advocate. Do you know Him? Is He in you? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't wait another day. Because your time is allotted. And there is a time for man once to die, and then comes the judgment. As I was standing in line to receive my doctorate of ministry, a gentleman who already had two degrees, two doctorates of ministry, received his degree, shook John MacArthur's hands, walked to Dr. Chow, moved his tassel, stepped down four stairs, hit the floor, and died. Focus on what's important, not temporal things. Know there's an advocate, my friend, who will fight your battles if you will simply rely on Him. Let's pray. This has been Getting in the Word with Pastor Stuart Guthrie. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. And be sure to visit us online at familybiblefellowship.org. And come see us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m.